Growing up, my family did a number of summer vacations driving up and down the west coast of the United States, driving through the state of Washington, Oregon, and California. And on these long road trips, my parents got really used to a number of things with my sister and I in the back seat. The first thing they got used to was listening to Disney sing-alongs over and over and over and over again. I think my dad must have listened to The Lion King on cassette about 300 times. In fact, at one point, he threw it out the window because he'd heard it so many times. <laughs> my parents got used to listening to us play I Spy in the back seat of all the things that we saw at the window and different vehicles and license plates. And unfortunately, they also got used to us arguing in the back seat together. I remember this one time, my sister and I had begun to argue in the back seat. Don't remember what it was about, but it went on and on and on. It went all the way until we got to this beach, beautiful, picturesque beach along the Oregon coast near Cannon Beach. And I really think that my dad was hoping that getting out on this beautiful beach, going for a walk on the sand, letting us play in the ocean, would end our fighting. Unfortunately not. Our arguments spilled out onto the beach together, and even as we walked, we asked our dad to intervene to try and judge who was right in our argument. And at one point, I think the Lion King just broke him, to be honest. He said, you know what? I don't care what you do. You guys figure it out. In fact, if you want to wrestle it out on the beach right now, be my guest. And so my sister and I looked at each other, and for some reason, it actually sounded like a great idea. And we smiled, and we started wrestling on this beach in the, sea, the salty seawater. And we got, off just, got up utterly filthy. And over the years, my sister and I have continued to wrestle together, though fortunately in less sandy and salty ways. My sister and I continue to wrestle with big ideas. My sister's a, a professor at a, a Christian college in Canada, and she's a clinical counselor. And I remember just a few weeks ago, we were wrestling with this major theological idea together over the phone. And I've been looking back on my relationship with my sister, especially the ways that we've wrestled over the years. I'm blown away by the ways that our wrestling has actually brought us together. That rather than pushing us apart, that our wrestling has opened up a, a new kind of intimacy in our relationship together. That wrestling involves a kind of openness and vulnerability that opens us to a kind of blessing, a new and intimate relationship with one another. We're in a sermon series here at 10th called Resilient Faith, where we're looking at different characters in the scriptures and the ways that they embody a resilient faith, a faith that lasts. Last week, we looked at the character of Abraham and the way that he embodies a resilient faith by trusting in the promises of God. And this week, we're going to look at the character of Jacob and the way that he embodies a resilient faith by wrestling with God. And that through his wrestling, Jacob opens himself in a kind of vulnerability to a new and intimate relationship with God. Before I read the passage, I want to set up the context for us first. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob was born a twin with his older brother Esau, and Jacob's name literally means deceiver. And so far in this story, Jacob has lived up to his name. He deceives his brother 
and his father to steal the blessing of the firstborn, which was Esau's. And then, as a result, he's forced to flee his family in order to save his life. Later on, Jacob meets this man named Esau and comes to live with him and eventually marries his two daughters. And at some point later in the story, Jacob also ends up deceiving Laban and stealing the family business of shepherding. And again, he's forced to flee for his life to escape the situation. And we see Jacob now on the road with his wives, with his family, with his different animals and his servants. And he's on the road when one of his messengers receives news that his older brother Esau is coming to meet him with an army of 400 men. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the one who has always been in control his whole life, either by deceiving or by running away, realizes that he's no longer in control. And so what does he do? He prays. It's the first recorded prayer of Jacob in the scriptures. And then after Jacob prays, we read the following. From Genesis 32. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. And Jacob replied, I will not let go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have wrestled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now, if this is the first time you've ever heard this story, Let's just acknowledge, it's kind of a weird story, isn't it? A man named Deceiver with some very significant family issues ends up being alone and wrestles with a mysterious figure in the middle of the night, doesn't he? And all of this somehow is a story of resilient faith. And if you're walking away with some questions about the story, then you're not alone. I think this story is meant to invite our questions. It's meant to invite our mind, our curiosity. And I want to touch on two questions that are, I think, going to help us to enter into the passage a little better. The first one is, who is this man who Jacob is wrestling with? Who is this mysterious figure who Jacob is wrestling with? And second, why are they wrestling? So first, who is this figure? Well, the quick answer is we don't know. At one point in the passage, Jacob says he's wrestling with a man, and then later in the passage, he said he was wrestling with God. Now, biblical scholars generally agree that they think that this person was a messenger of God, a person or a figure who goes with the authority of God, who speaks on behalf of God, and who acts on behalf of God. And so when Jacob hears the voice of this mysterious figure, he is hearing the voice of God. 
And when Jacob wrestles with this figure, he too is wrestling with God. And second, why the wrestling? Especially when we think of the fact that by this point, Jacob was, I believe, 97 years old. So by all intensive purposes for us, he's a senior citizen. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, this senior citizen is wrestling with this mysterious figure. It's kind of strange, isn't it? But we have to remember where we are in the story. Jacob, probably for the first time in his life, recognizes that he's not in control, recognizes his own vulnerability and the possibility of his own suffering and losing his life and the lives of his wife and his children. And he's no doubt afraid. And for the first time, at least recorded, it's likely that Jacob had prayed before this, but the fact that this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob is a signal to us that something special is happening. Likely this is the first time in Jacob's life where he is praying the more open and honest prayer that he's ever prayed before. And Jacob asks for God to intervene. And then what happens? God shows up. But he shows up in a way that's very unexpected, isn't it? I'm sure that Jacob didn't expect that this mysterious figure would end up wrestling with him, but that's how God shows up. He wrestles. And in the Hebrew, the original language of this passage, the word wrestle literally means to get dirty. And no doubt, they are getting dirty. The same way my sister and I were wrestling on the beach, they are no doubt wrestling it out in the mud and in the dirt. But their wrestling also symbolizes something bigger, both in the story and for the person of Jacob. My colleague Dan Matheson, who's our pastor at our West Side site, said this, Wrestling with God in the scriptures, in the Bible, means involving God in our ordinary, dirty affairs. It means integrating God into the fullness of our lives. And I think for the first time, Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the one who has been in control, Jacob the one who I think has been holding God at an arm's length, is no longer able to hold God at an arm's length anymore. He's no longer in control of the situation, and the usual tools that he used of deception and running away will no longer work. And for the first time in his life, he's truly forced in a full way to integrate the person of God into his own ordinary, dirty affairs. Jacob is forced to integrate the fullness of God with the fullness of his own life. I remember the first time that, or one of the earliest times that I was wrestling with God. For me, it was with my mind. I was exploring faith. I was new to church. And I remember sitting in one of the pews, and when everyone stood up to sing, I would stand up with them, but I would not sing. I wanted to hold God at a distance, and so I would stand there pretty stoically and critically examine every word that they said and every word that they sang. And then when the preacher got up and would talk about a passage and explain the message, again, I stood there or sat there and critically examined every word that they said. That for me, I wanted to hold God at a distance. But as I began to listen and began to hear worship and even began to read more about God, God began to encroach himself on my mind in the ordinary, dirty affairs of my own life. He was seeking to integrate himself into me. 
I began to read books about Christianity and books against Christianity. I wrestled with God with my mind. And eventually I got to the place where my biggest question was, how much belief do you have to have to say that you believed? I had a certain kind of belief. By this point, I had believed in God. I believed actually that the church even was an agent of good in the world because I'd experienced that myself. I even believed in Jesus. I didn't know what that really meant or who he was. Was he a prophet? Was he just some nice guy? Or was he the embodiment, the incarnation of God? I wasn't sure. And so I asked the question, how much belief do you have to have to believe? You see, I thought that when you believed, you had to have all the answers. You had to have all your ducks in a row, all of your questions solved. Only then could you believe. Only then could you really be baptized. Only then could you belong. And two movements were helpful for me in my journey of faith, recognizing that wrestling is actually a part of the faith journey. The first one is that I attended the Alpha course. For those of you who haven't heard of Alpha before, Alpha is a course where anyone can come in order to ask big questions about God. You're put in a a table with other people who are like you, who have questions. You have dinner together, you watch a video about some of the major questions about who God is, and you're given a non-pressured space to talk about some of those. And what was most helpful for me in the Alpha course was the community. Having other people ask questions alongside of me who are willing to wrestle with me through those questions. And that those people who wrestled with me weren't just those who were exploring faith, but those who actually said they had faith and said that they belonged to a church community and they belonged to God. And I began to recognize that I didn't have to have all of my ducks in a row in order to have faith and to believe, but in fact that a part of the journey of faith is continuing to ask good questions, especially in the context of community as I had in the Alpha course. That a part of the journey of faith is continuing to ask questions. Second thing that was helpful for me in this journey was reading a book by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, a book called Fear and Trembling. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has this phrase, faith, uh, a leap of faith, sorry, has this phrase, a leap of faith. That for Kierkegaard, you cannot completely reason your way into faith. That logic and reason are helpful. In fact, he was one of the most prominent writers in Western history. He wrote at a speed that was greater than anyone else even to this day. He wrote so much. He was a brilliant figure. And yet he recognized that even logic and reason couldn't really take you all the way into faith. Could take you a long way, but not the whole way. And that's why he said, we need to at some point take this leap of faith to truly understand the fullness of the faith to which we seek to belong. Let me give an analogy that I think will be helpful. Imagine someone comes to you, maybe to you, Sharon, and they tell you of a country that they've just been to. And they tell you all about it, they show pictures of it, they show videos about it. In fact, other people come to you and show you as well. Now, you may have a, a certain amount of faith given what other people have shown to you, that this faith place does, in fact, exist. But likely until you have been there yourself, 
there's always going to be a certain level of skepticism, isn't there? And so, in order to truly believe that that place exists, you at some point need to have enough faith to take that leap to go there yourself, don't you? In order to truly understand and embody the faith that you have, you need to have enough faith to take that final leap to go there yourself. That You cannot only and truly reason yourself all the way into believing. That reason and logic are helpful and needed. We shouldn't push away the engagement of our mind, but utilize it. And we need understanding to help our faith. But we also need enough faith to be able to take a leap into new places to more deeply understand and experience the things that we ourselves believe. In the Middle Ages, they called this faith-seeking understanding. That we need enough understanding to have faith, but we also need enough faith to have understanding. And for me, as I wrestled with God with my mind, these over time became some of the most vulnerable places for me. It's a pretty vulnerable thing to open up your mental categories and the things that you believe about the world, isn't it? But it also became for me one of the greatest places where I began to meet God for the first time and then again and again and again. The writer John Acuff says this, wrestling with God is a sign of intimacy. You can't wrestle with someone you're far away from. It's so true, isn't it? That for me, one of the greatest places where I have wrestled with God over the years is with my mind, and no doubt, some of you, that's true as well. But for Jacob, his wrestling seems a bit different, doesn't it? His wrestling isn't with his mind or with an intellectual curiosity, but his wrestling is out of a sense of need. It's a wrestling of his whole self, his character, his future, his identity, his belonging. That for Jacob, he has really come to the end of his self-sufficiency to realize that he is not in control of his life. And there's something about coming to the end of our own resources and realizing that we're not in control that often opens us up to new explorations of God and truth and reality than maybe we weren't open to before. And the life of faith, as we wrestle with God through our own suffering, through the suffering of another one, another person, or even the possibility of suffering, it opens us up to the possibility both of an intimacy with God and a vulnerability with God that we maybe never could have experienced before. A number of weeks ago, I listened to a podcast where they had interviewed Pete Grieg. If you don't ever heard of Pete's name before, Pete was the founder of 24-7 Prayer, an international interdenominational prayer movement that has been praying day and night for over 20 years. That's pretty amazing to think of. Pete's also a pastor in the UK, and I had this mental picture of who Pete was coming into that interview. That someone who had enough faith and a deep enough prayer life to begin 24-7 prayer must have a, a pretty unique prayer life. I never would have imagined that someone like Pete would wrestle with God even still. But in the podcast, Pete explained that there was a season in his life where his wife became extremely sick and they thought that she would die. 
His wife, Sammy, was in the hospital one day with treatment. And Pete was in one of the hospital rooms with his friend, Dan. And Pete and Dan began to talk, and this talk turned into a prayer. A prayer that Pete said became the most honest, vulnerable, open prayer that he had ever prayed in his life. And to be honest, when I heard what he said, I was really surprised. Pete said that at one point during his prayer time with his friend Dan, opening his heart towards God, in openness and vulnerability, he said these words, I know I'm supposed to pray, not my will, but yours, but I just won't do it. I'm not interested in Christianity. I'm interested in my wife. In my wife living and their kids knowing their mom. If that's not in your master plan, then I'm fighting you for this. Those words surprise me. Maybe they surprise you too. But for the first time in his life, Dan said that he opened himself through his wrestling with God, through his suffering, to a new kind of relationship that he hadn't before. He opened himself to a new kind of vulnerability and intimacy in his relationship with God than he ever had by opening up his heart and his life in truth to him. And so too is the same for us. That as we wrestle with God, with our minds, and even as we wrestle with God through suffering, the suffering of a loved one or ourself, or like Jacob, the possibility of suffering, that we open ourselves and we open our lives to a new kind of intimacy and relationship with God that would not have been possible without it. And John in his interview, John, uh, or sorry, Pete Grieg in the interview said, one of the things that was most helpful for him through this season, the season of wrestling with God, the season of struggling, of trying to cling to God, was his friend Dan. His friend Dan was in the room with him when he prayed this open, vulnerable, desperate prayer. Dan was there praying alongside him, with him, and for him. Recognizing that he doesn't only need to hold on to God, to cling to God, but that God is clinging to him through this season. And to be honest, one of the greatest, I think, tragedies of Jacob's story is that he wrestled alone. That through Jacob's life, through his pattern of living, through his deception, through his pattern of running away when things got hard, that Jacob continued to push people away. And then, in the space of his own suffering, the space of his own wrestling, he was there wrestling alone. This is why at 10th, we so encourage people to get into life groups, soul truths, some kind of community group, not just because the life of faith is better together, but because when we go through seasons of wrestling and suffering and struggle, We need someone like Dan, who's there praying and wrestling beside us, along with us, reminding us that even through our wrestling and our difficulties, that God is still clinging to us. And that our own suffering, our own wrestling, can actually be a means to our own change and a new and more intimate relationship with God that we are invited in our wrestling into a new, more intimate relationship with God than we'd ever experienced before. Part of my role here at 10th is not only site pastor for the Mount Pleasant community, but also to oversee marriage ministry at 10th. And in the marriage literature, there's one book by John Gottman called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. 
And there's one part in the book where he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is a, the four horsemen of the marital apocalypse. So what are four habits that break down marriages and relationships? And one of them is stonewalling. It's putting an emotional barrier between you and another person. Wrestling is the opposite of stonewalling. In stonewalling, we put a barrier between ourselves and another person, but when we wrestle someone, we open ourselves in vulnerability in ways that we hadn't before. That we're actually willing to risk something, to lose something, to open ourselves to let somebody in. And when we wrestle with God, we open ourselves to a new kind of intimacy and vulnerability and relationship than we had previously had with him. In the modern world, wrestling and suffering is something to be avoided or conquered, isn't it? Visiting any bookshop in the airport could tell you that. But in the biblical worldview, suffering and wrestling, especially wrestling with God, can actually lead to a change and a blessing. Both the Apostle Paul and Jesus believe this. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this, We also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering and difficulty and wrestling is not something to be pushed aside or conquered. But through our suffering, through our wrestling with God, we can receive a blessing. If you don't think that wrestling with God is a part of a life of faith, then we need only look at the life of Jesus. Jesus in Luke's gospel, on the very morning before he was betrayed and taken to the cross, was in a garden with his disciples. His disciples had fallen asleep. But in that time, he prayed a vulnerable prayer of wrestling. Jesus prayed a vulnerable prayer of wrestling with God the Father. In Luke 22, he says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was willing to give his life on the cross and to go there willingly for our sake. But he still wrestled. Lord, if there's any way that you could take this cup Please do it. But Jesus not only wrestled with God, but trusted in God's goodness and benevolence and generousness. That even though he wrestled, even though he knew that he would suffer, that through it, a kind of blessing would spill out. A kind of blessing that happened three days after Jesus' death when he was raised and resurrected to new life. That as Jesus took on himself on the cross, our own sin our own death, our own brokenness, that in the resurrection that he invited us into a new way of life, a new kind of intimate life with God that had never been experienced before for all people, to anyone who would belong to him, who would seek to follow him, Jesus invites a kind of intimacy with God, a relationship so intimate that in fact the very life of God through the Holy Spirit could come and enter and dwell within him. Suffering is not something to be tossed aside, 
but that through our resting that we can enter into a deeper relationship with God. In the final days of her life, my grandmother wrestled with God. She had known God her whole life and faithfully sought to follow him. But especially in her last days, she experienced intense pain and suffering. Even as the, doc- the doctors incredibly did a great job trying to manage their pain, they couldn't manage it all. She experienced a great amount of physical pain and suffering, and she wrestled with God, asking that God would take this pain from her. And I believe that in her wrestling, that God poured out one final blessing for her. On the day that she would pass, my, a few of our family members went and visited her, and she explained that she had been visited by Jesus in a way that she had only happened, that only happened with her once before that in the shadow and the light of her hospital room, that she saw a vision and an experience of Jesus that had only happened once before. That as my grandma had opened herself in her own vulnerability and wrestling through her own suffering, realizing that she was likely coming to the end of her own life, that Jesus opened up a place of intimacy and appearance for her that had only happened once before. And then a number of hours later, my grandma gave her spirit and went to enter into a new kind of relationship with him. An even more intimate and close and beautiful one than she had experienced so far. The space of loss and wrestling isn't a space to be conquered or ignored, but can be a place of blessing. And for Jacob, that's exactly what happened. That Jacob, after he wrestled with God, was given a new name. And in the biblical worldview, to be given a new name is to be given a new character, a new identity, a new sense of belonging. That Jacob, the deceiver, Jacob, the one who could control his own destiny, Jacob, the one who was in control and kept God at a distance, became Israel, one who wrestled with God. That God actually blessed Jacob, not in spite of his wrestling, but honoring his wrestling. That he was no longer Jacob the deceiver who kept God at a distance, but Jacob the wrestler, who opened himself in vulnerability to a new relationship with God, and doing so, gained a new name, a new identity, a new character, and a new destiny. Wrestling is not something to be ignored, but it's a part of the journey of faith and an opportunity to enter more closely into the life of God, more intimately. Wrestling is a part of a resilient faith that opens us in ways that we couldn't have experienced before to a new, more intimate relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you wrestle with us. But you wrestle with us with such gentleness that even the story of Jacob, that Jacob at 97 years old was dealt with so delicately with you, the creator of the universe, that even as you touched his hip, that you held him in your arms. And that so too, when we experience suffering and wrestling and difficulty, that even when we feel like we walk with a limp, that you hold us tight and you invite us to cling with you as well. I pray for anyone here who wrestles, 
with their mind, with their spirit, through suffering or through the suffering of a loved one. I pray that they would know your great gentleness, your love, your intimacy, and your care. That they would share in the new name that you gave to Jacob, Israel. One who wrestles, one who draws close to God, and one who is drawn close to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.